No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and we are on the Thursday episode, which means it's a review episode, and we're going to be looking at the Superman books cover dated September 2007. And these will include Superman 665, Action Comics number 852, and Superman Batman number 38. Before we jump in, I just want to remind you that there will be a live episode of Superman Forever Radio. There'll be episode 33 on May 29th, 2011 at 6 p.m. Central Time. And that will be located directly at supermanforever.com. And about 30 minutes before the show, I'm going to send out uh, links and, every, to, and reminders to everybody. Um, some of you have RSVP'd on Facebook. If you'd be so kind, uh, please do so. Declined is fine. I understand people have things to do. But that way I know how many to expect. Not that I'm preparing food, but at least I can gauge you know, the potential for disaster uh, if nobody shows up, which would be awkward... And as I mentioned uh, on Sunday, this could be either the most awesome episode thing to happen to the show ever, or it could be a complete disaster. I don't know. There's too, so many technical things that could go wrong, so on and so forth. But for those of you that are attending, um, we will be discussing the Superman movie franchise, which does include Superman and the Mole Men. Um, I'm going to disqualify the serials, as that's an entirely different entity, but it can be Superman the Movie, Superman 2, Superman 2 the Richard Donner Cut, Superman 3, Superman 4 the Quest for Peace, and of course Superman Returns, and if you have anything to say about the new Man of Steel, uh, go ahead and throw that in the mix too, but it's going to be a call-in show, you will be able to actually be live on the air just by calling the call-in line, and for those of you that don't remember, the call-in line is actually... uh, Dialable, pardon me, reachable at 703-95-SUPER, or which would translate to 703-957-8737. And one other note, next Thursday will be the last Thursday episode of Superman Forever Radio. I'm going to put the show back together into one Sunday episode, just because uh, with the SFR Daily Planet and with the Walking Dorks podcast, as well as one other project that I'm actually going to play a promo for here in just a moment, uh, time's getting a little bit off, and my wife has put down the edict that if I can't take care of my podcasting business on during the work week, rather than spilling over into the weekend and sometimes rushing up to the last minute, that perhaps maybe I should pursue another hobby. And not wanting to do that, I will kind of streamline my you know production and just put it back into one Sunday episode a week. Um, what that will do is uh, Sunday I'll be back with episode 31, just like normal, and Thursday be back with 32, which we'll be looking at October 2007, and then of course that following Sunday will be a little bit different since we're doing the live episode with episode 33, so that would mean I would be back on my normal Sunday schedule the following Sunday, which is, if I'm not mistaken, June 5th, and that will actually lead us almost right up to Metropolis which will be a slightly off-kilter schedule. Um, I mean, we'll be... um, Well, I'll get into some details as we get closer. Probably announce some of those on the live episode. But June 5th, we'll be back to a normal Sunday episode with the news, reviews, 
the topic and then the Superman the Animated Series. Just uh, all in all, it just streamlines it, makes it a little bit easier. Um, I liked the two-episode-a-week format. It really gave time to concentrate on one aspect or another. But I think if I balance this out, it's not that big of a, a tweak, and you'll get a more full, fig, uh, full-bodied show. And as I mentioned, you know, now we have the SFR Daily Planet, so you already hear me Monday through Friday anyway. So it kind of feels a little obnoxious that I'm kind of inundating everybody with a lot of this podcast. And, of course, the wife's edict. Uh, she can hear me. So anyway, so two announcements. Uh, the live episode May 29th at 6 p.m. Central Time, talking about the Superman movie franchise at supermanforever.com. The going back to a single episode... Uh, format on May or June 5th, and one more thing, and I'm going to play a promo for it now, that will be coming up around that same time, and then we will jump into the book's cover dated September 2007. July 1963. The Marvel Age of Comics was dawning. First came the rise of the Fantastic Four. Then came the Incredible Hulk followed by the amazing Spider-Man and the mighty Thor. But, the Marvel Age was about to give way to the Age of the Atom, and nothing would be the same. Was the world ready for the strangest superheroes of all? The X-Men? On June 3rd, you can go to the movie theater and see the evolution of the X-Men, or... You can listen to Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters, an X-Men podcast, and see how it really began. It's the Merry Marvel Mutants, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, The Angel, The Beast, Iceman, and their mentor, Professor Xavier, from the beginning, issue by issue. Every two weeks, join J. David Weider and Michael Bailey as they follow the X-Men saga from the creation to the first class and beyond. Gasp at the tyranny of Magneto. Stand in the awe of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Marvel at the Mystery of the Vanisher, and Cower at the Sight of the Submariner. All for the first time, panel by panel. On June 3rd, prepare for the Children of the Atom at xavierspodcast.blogspot.com. In September 2007 for the Superman books, it was all about some Jimmy Olsen. Primarily because he was appearing in Countdown as a big part of that. And we're going to talk about that as I get into the review, but just be warned, this is a very Jimmy-centric episode. So our first stop for the cover date September 2007 is Action Comics 852, which went on sale July 25th, 2007. This issue is Choices, which is a countdown tie-in, and it's reprinted in Superman 321 Action, that trade paperback. This issue was written by Kurt Busiek, penciled by Brad Walker, inked by John Livesay, lettered by Jared Fletcher, colorist was Richard Horry, and Tanya Hori. It was edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro, and of course Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And the issue opens at the Metropolis Zoo, where one of the chimpanzees begins to glow green, as in kryptonite green, and climbs up, looks at the baboons in the next cage, and begins to become covered in some strange foam. And the monkey, the glowing monkey, which... It's kind of a great name for a band. He takes on the shape and form of the baboon, which spooks the other animals, which they begin to growl and bark, or whatever the monkeys do, at the uh, chimpanzees, which frightens the the shape-changing chimp into escaping its cage and fleeing the zoo in fear. 
Meanwhile, Jimmy is at the Daily Planet sketching some costume designs for his newfound superpowers. Oh, what, you don't remember that? Maybe you weren't reading Countdown. Luckily, we get a nice flashback. While visiting Arkham Asylum recently, Jimmy was attacked by Killer Croc, which would mean he would be toast. Except that Jimmy, Joni would be funny too, Jimmy spontaneously stretched, making his skin rubbery. And later on down the road, he also grew spikes while being held up in Suicide Slum. And Jimmy just doesn't know where the powers came from or even how to control them. They just appear, like thoughts, as Lucas would say in Empire Records. However, being Superman's pal, Jimmy craves himself some superhero action, and henceforth is developing a superhero identity, which Lois catches him. And he plays it his little sketches off as though he's submitting a new comic strip to editorial, and Lois advises him not to quit his day job. So Perry White enters the room and offers Jimmy a chance to do some actual reporting by tagging along with Clark to see the trial of the Kryptonite Man held on Stryker's Island, stemming from his actions way back in Up, Up, and Away. Clark, meanwhile, is foiling foiling a bank robbery across town, and enters the planet just as Perry is about to send Jimmy with an alternate reporter. So the two go to the trial, held on strikers because of the volatile radiation that Abernathy, you know, radiates. Wow. And here, Kryptonite Man's lawyer pleads to let him continue his research behind bars. And to prove the value of Abernathy's work, a Kryptonite scalpel is displayed, which could help treat cancer patients. Star Labs, they do agree that Abernathy's research is valid, and several corporations even offer to underwrite his work. And Jimmy thinks to himself that he's never wondered what happens to criminals after Superman catches them, which leads to a flashback from out of nowhere. And in the flashback, we see one of Jimmy's early adventures, which will be a theme this month, in which he witnessed a group of Scottish engineers who got drunk one night and uploaded their consciousness into robot bodies. These are the rude mechanicals. The engineers, however, remain stuck in the bodies, perpetually drunk and causing a ruckus. And Jimmy stows away in the robot's flying jalopy and rides back to their hideout, where the robots eventually pass out. Jimmy's able to use some of the equipment laying around to fashion a high-frequency transmitter to signal Superman, who shows up just as the rude mechanicals awaken and threaten to attack Jimmy. And of course, Superman does what he does, takes care of the robots, and tells Jimmy that they need a better delivery device for the signal, like a watch. So the flashback ends, we're back at the trial, and the judge concludes that Abernathy can continue his research on paper, but other engineers would have to carry out the physical experiments. Which just sends the kryptonite man into a rage, and he begins to tear out of his shackles and generally just jack up the complex. And Jimmy finds his superpowers kicking in as he begins to morph into a werewolf. A teen wolf, would you say? And Jimmy opts to hide, but Superman arrives, knocks the kryptonite man down with one punch, thanks to a lead-lined glove, and the day is saved. Now, on the ferry back from Stryker's Island, Jimmy asks Clark if he wants to catch a ball game. Kind of talk through some things, but Clark has to take Christopher to see Lois's mom. Earmark that. So, all alone and dejected, Jimmy walks down the streets of Metropolis where he, when he hears sirens, which he follows, to a liquor store what's being uh, held up. There's a shootout happening, and the shooters, the criminals, are actually well fortified in the store. So Jimmy decides this is his moment. He decides uh, to don a homemade mask, and he jumps into action, stretching once again, and that is where the issue leaves us. Now, this issue 
is a nice break following Last Sun, Action 850, some of the last bigger events that we've had to recently. And you know what? Sometimes a straightforward story, Superman story is just the ticket. I just hate that this is a countdown tie-in, but that doesn't completely detract from the story. I can, I can live with it. To give you a quick overview of Countdown, it was a 52-issue weekly series, which literally followed 52 and actually began counting backwards from 52 to 0. And in this, the new, gar- new gods start getting murdered, and Jimmy actually gains superpowers from some unknown reason that will actually play out a little bit later in the story. And I stated that, you know, Countdown is so huge it's too much to cover in any full capacity. But as time goes on, I, I, I will feed the relevant bits in here, usually in the Elsewhere in the DC Universe section. In this particular issue, the recap on page 4 is sufficient. Even though the editor note says, All in Countdown, we told you not to miss it. Well, guess what? We missed it and the recap seems to work fine. I like that the manifestation of Jimmy's powers are quite blatantly references to Jimmy's Silver Age transformations into Elastic Lad, Big Brain, and more. I also dig on page 4 where Lois has a Superwife mug. However, I'm not sure how I feel about the flashback to Jimmy's early days right in mid-story. It's a little awkward in terms of timing and relevance. Uh, Not that I'm against showing the formative period of Jimmy Olsen, But this isn't the only origin issue for Superman's pal this month, as we'll see in just a few minutes. I'm also not sure how I feel about the rude mechanicals. They're stereotypes, and they're actually kind of offensive. Well, actually, they're just straight-up offensive. They're perpetually drunk, wearing kilts, they're Scottish cliches all over the place. And as fun as they are, I just can't get completely past the stereotype. I feel guilty if I like them. And while I'm glad to see the monkey, or what I assume is the monkey Abernathy was experimenting on way back in Up, Up, and Away, glad to see it alive and well, and she, well, shape-shifting's a little much. Not sure how that came about, but we're going to see that play out next issue. And all in all, this issue was somewhat fun, honestly, despite the off-balance storytelling. Superman gets to fight Kryptonite Man and some bank robbers. Clark Kent has a great moment when showing up at the planet with the line, I had to stop by the bank. And Jimmy gets center stage. Plus, even if it's out of place, seeing the origin of the Signal Watch was a real treat. I think this would have been better as a backup story, maybe an annual, or as Action Comics goes to backup, just seeing that uh, develop somewhere else, rather than right in mid-story. Now, Jimmy stowing away in the back of the Rude Mechanicals jalopy was straight Speed Racer. I don't know why Jimmy doesn't have a monkey sidekick. And there is one... there's an oddity to the art, however... Now, Brad Walker has some great characterizations on Jimmy, Perry, and even Clark. And even his side characters like Dr. Clyburn from Star Labs and Rance Howard, one of the uh, business moguls uh, offering to underwrite the Kryptonite Man, they have a really nice lifelike quality, but his depiction of Superman has this blank face, no real facial definition. It's, It's like when Clark slips the glasses off, he loses all emotion. And maybe it's because of the more rounded face Walker uses, or the slight lantern jaw, but it just doesn't completely work. And this may be a Jimmy story and all, but Superman is still the star of the book at this time, and when drawing the Man of Steel, you need to bring your A-game. And Walker does not do that here, and that really knocks the book down a few notches. For example, Pete Woods manages to pull off the more rounded look with only a few flaws. Walker misses the mark entirely. 
And while that takes me out of the story slightly, I'm still inclined to enjoy the issue somewhat. Um, except for the big continuity error. Uh, they mentioned that you know Clark is taking Christopher to see Lois's mom. It's continuity flaw times two, which won't be the last one we see this week. Uh, a, Lois Lane's mom is said to be dead following Infinite Crisis. And B, I can't tell you what the other continuity flaw is yet until we get to the end of Last Sun. But earmark this for several episodes. And overall, I mean, the continuity was so fluid, it just points out exactly what the editors didn't know at that time. I don't think anyone had a clue what the continuity was. And then Jeff Johns did his Secret Origin, was allowed to rewrite pretty much everything anybody put in. Even if, you know, with Jimmy's origin being told this month... Well, I'm going to get to that in the next episode, in the next issue. So let's go ahead and wrap this issue up. I'm I really inclined to enjoy the issue somewhat. It's not off the charts, but I still got a nice chuckle. I enjoyed it. So I'm going to give Action Comics 852 a ranking of Wait for the Trade. Not a complete waste of time, fairly enjoyable, but the awkward flashback, lack of explanation on the morphing chimp, and the odd-looking Superman really dragged down what could have been a pull list issue. And the Jimmy Olsen train doesn't stop there. Let's take a look at Superman number 665, which went on sale July 5th, 2007, entitled Jimmy, also reprinted in 321 Action. This one was also written by Kurt Busiek, with penciler Rick Leonardi, inker Andy Parks, lettered by Comicraft, colored by Peter Pentazis, edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro, with a cover by Carlos Pacheco, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this issue opens with a much younger Jimmy Olsen on a street corner hawking the Daily Planet in a flashback issue, where we're going to remain for the full issue. Now, Clark's narration lets us know that this was years ago, and this was early in Clark's career, so keep that in context. Jimmy Olsen's much, much younger. So we open with Jimmy on the street corner, Clark, Perry White, and Lois Lane all exit the planet, heading for a work lunch to work on a story that Clark is backing Lois on. When Perry notices a young Jimmy Olsen and commends him on selling the paper, especially since Olsen is actually selling leftover papers from one of his morning routes. As Perry is complimenting Olsen, commenting that he too was once a paper boy, Clark has to run off to become Superman to take care of a couple of goons sporting advanced alien technology, which seems to be popping up quite a bit in the streets of Metropolis. Just as Superman is about to change back to Clark Kent and cover the story, Lois shows up and totally yanks that story out from under him. Otherwise, he would have to reveal his secret identity. So in frustration, Clark heads back to Smallville to visit Ma and Pa Kent and vent about how Superman and Clark Kent seem to get in each other's way. Well, his parents advise that Clark just needs a friend that he doesn't have to be on guard with, such as Batman, perhaps. Clark says that Batman isn't one for relaxing, and in fact, he scares him. And back in Metropolis two days later, Clark is trying to convince Perry that he can handle bigger stories, which Perry isn't completely swayed on. But Perry takes Clark into the planet's loading dock, where he introduces the mild-mannered reporter to Barry Giardali, who has more connections in politics than the Borough Council. And as they're walking down the hall in the loading dock, they run into Jimmy again, who informs them that he also helps out on the docks. Perry reminisces about when he was a copy boy, and then editor Hard Case Bill Hannigan would just butt his, bust his butt from dawn till dusk, but it made Perry a newspaper man. So Perry tells Clark to dig up anything he can on Olsen, 
and Clark discovers that Jimmy is sleeping in a hidden spot down on the loading docks. Knowing he's about to be discovered, Jimmy has run away by the time they find the spot. As Superman, he is able to track Jimmy down to Centennial Park, where Jimmy explains that he doesn't want to go into the system. Well, Perry and Clark take Jimmy to get some food at a diner, which Jimmy woofs down, and explains that his mother, Sarah Olson, got lost in the Amazon. And when his dad, a master sergeant at Fort Bridwell, which is a nod to one of Superman's past riders, went looking for his mom, he too disappeared. So Jimmy was left in the care of his next-door neighbor, Tess Haslip, who is an accountant, but gangster Monty McGraw was one of her clients, and shot her when she refused to hand over his falsified financial books. Jimmy was able to escape, but but has been on his own ever since and on the run, supporting himself with paper routes and odd jobs around the Daily Planet. As Jimmy, Perry, and Clark leave the diner, a black sedan rolls up and snatches Jimmy, shooting at Perry and Clark. Thanks to Clark's super speed and invulnerability, none of the bullets hit Perry, but Clark pursues the thugs as Superman, crashing into their hideout, where localized gravity fields hold the Man of Steel at bay as McGraw beats him with the help of an exoskeleton. Jimmy, knowing that they are both marked for death, breaks free, busts the gravity field generator, which allows Superman to do, once again what Superman does, smack down the bad guys. And Superman thanks Jimmy for saving his life. Jimmy asks... Are we pals? Which Superman confirms. And back at the Daily Planet, Perry gives Jimmy a better paying job as a copy boy and begins to lay into the kid as Hannigan laid into him, sending Olsen to get coffee, then to pick up his dry cleaning. And the story wraps with Superman flying around the city and spotting Jimmy on the rooftop who is talk- where he is talking to his parents who are still missing. Relating to the kid and remembering what his own parents said about needing a friend, Jimmy... Uh, pardon me, Superman asks Jimmy to show him around the city, and the two go flying together. Not quite the Lois Lane type flying, but flying nonetheless. Now, the biggest gaping hole in the plot of this issue is the fact that, once again, Superman's secret origin will contradict it down the line. In that, there's no missing parents, Jimmy is older when Superman and Jimmy meet, and he factors more into the origin of Superman in that version of the story. Here, Superman's already established, Jimmy is roughly 12 years old, and, of course, there's the missing parents issue. That doesn't mean that this doesn't work as a standalone story. It has plenty of good things going for it. Perry recognizing Jimmy's get-up-and-go, as well as reflecting on his own experiences as a copy boy, proved that his occasional harsh treatment of Jimmy does serve a purpose. And adding in a backstory of tragedy and missing parents serves to flesh out Jimmy a little bit and kind of reboot him. Unfortunately, at times, I kind of felt like I was reading Dick Tracy, especially in the diner scene where Jimmy wolfs down a buffet's worth of food. It's a minor complaint, admittedly, and this issue made me think of the Burn era Superman, where at that time in comics, I mean, it's odd since it clearly wipes out that version of Jimmy, but at that time in comics, the characters seem more Burn-like here than they have previously in that it was possible to go almost a whole issue without Superman in the comic just because of the compelling side characters. And that was something the writers really did well during that time, and this is a nice callback to that. And admittedly, it's hard to make Jimmy compelling sometimes. But here it works. It seems like they smushed Jimmy into the character of Keith from that era. And just to see if it would work. And it did, or it could have. And this may have been a great way to give Jimmy his own storyline, searching for his missing parents... 
but really instead it just got dropped and retconned. And I also like that it was a self-contained story, despite being a countdown tie-in. Busick made a good attempt at fleshing Jimmy out between this issue and Action 852, but sadly we wouldn't see a good, really good Jimmy story for literally years after this. And Rick Leonardi's art is good, and the characters are crisp and fluid. He has a clean style, almost like a more streamlined John Bogdanov, which endears it to me immediately. But Bogdanov had some art that would, at times, it would just make you simply say, wow. And nothing about Leonardi's art goes above and beyond. There's no wow moments here. And it wasn't the strongest issue, admittedly. And if I picked up this issue at my local comic shop, it wouldn't really sway me to put it on my pull list. But I still enjoyed it as a Superman fan, especially in tandem with Action 852. So I give it a rating of Wait for the Trade. And finally this week, we have a comic that is not Jimmy Olsen-centric. Superman Batman number 38 went on sale July 18, 2007, and it is entitled Crack Up, which is actually Torment Part 2, written by Alan Burnett, penciled by Dustin Gein, inked by Derek Friedolfs, lettered by Rob Lay, colored by Randy Mayer, edited by Eddie Barganza, with a cover penciler of Dustin Gein and Derek Friedolfs. A variant cover was done by Claudio Castellini. And this is reprinted in the Superman Batman Torment hardcover. And picking up where we left off last issue, Superman flies around a metropolis overcome with expanding kryptonite rocks. The Man of Steel saves who he can, placing a group of people on the Daily Planet rooftop, just in time to see Lois pinned to the ground by a fallen column beneath the crumbling doorframe of the Daily Planet. As he swoops down to rescue her, Superman is overtaken by the kryptonite and falls only to wake up in his own apartment. The entire sequence was all a dream. Lois is on the phone in the apartment with Pete Ross, having arranged an interview, and Clark, still disoriented, tells her he just had a really bad nightmare. In Gotham, Batman observes Killer Croc, who has refused to say anything about what he stole or how he ended up in the middle of the ocean. And But he still suspects that Croc is working with someone, and he tells Jim Gordon as they look down on Croc in the prison cell. But if it's who he thinks he is, Batman explains, that someone is already in the room with Croc. Back at the planet, Clark still hasn't shaken off the nightmare, and he double-checks the geological survey, finding that there's no faults out of place, nothing odd. And he listens to the sounds around him with his super hearing and begins to lose his mind, confusing the dream with reality, uh, generally starting to talk in Kryptonian in his internal monologue, just generally losing it. And so Clark goes rushing out of the Daily Planet in an absolute craze. Meanwhile, in the Metropolis crowd, the older man with the bowler hat from last issue follows a blonde businesswoman onto the subway, where he activates a handheld device that essentially causes her to drop dead from fear. The older gentleman deboards the train, goes down a corridor in the subway station, and enters a side room where the younger man in shades from last issue greets him, along with a throng of recruits. John, as the older man refers to him, has placed the crystal stolen by Killer Croc last issue into a machine which is sending out a frequency that actually manages manages to tap into the primal fear section of Superman's brain. And this is what causes Clark to burst into a restaurant where Lois is interviewing Pete Ross 
and use his heat vision on Pete's hand as it gets near Lois. He's in a fit of jealousy, but Clark realizes what he's done and that he's out and about without his glasses using his powers, and he rushes right back out of the restaurant, causing an oil tanker to jackknife. Grabbing the tanker's trailer, he flies into high into the air, uses his heat vision to detonate it, which throws him back down to the ground into a junkyard where he basically continues to lose his mind. Batman, meanwhile, interrogates Luthor, who explains that the device is the most powerful transmitter in the universe, but he didn't build it for Superman. This thing goes interdimensional. And Batman leaves Luthor, and as he's walking away after his wonderful interrogation tactics, Luthor tells him to watch out because he's becoming his new favorite target. Meanwhile, in a world away, literally, on Apocalypse, the man in the bowler hat reveals himself to be Desaad. He returns home to find that he's been summoned several times, and Darkseid himself greets Zod, telling him that he has invested too much into, uh, into this to... And with that, Darkseid misses a step and falls on his face. No, really, I'm not making this up. Look at the issue. But Darkseid gets to his feet, as Desaad is thankful to not be dead after witnessing such an event, and he tells his master that he's, it's only a matter of t- hours before success is had. Meanwhile, from a safe vantage point, Orion's wife Becca watches, which we will pick up on next issue, and back in Metropolis, a pack of rabid hellhounds track Superman into the junkyard and lead their master, Scarecrow, right to a cowering man of steel. And so ends the second chapter of Torment. Like I said only a few minutes ago, sometimes just a straight, straightforward Superman story is just the ticket. Is there anything earth-shattering in this book? No, not at all. But the villains are just the right recipe here, and they're revealed at just the right times. The fact that Darkseid is using the Scarecrow to exact his twisted plot on Superman just gets me. That's awesome. I never would have uh, paired these, the Apocalypseans and, you know, Scarecrow, but man, it works really, really well. And we don't get a ton of action here, but there's plenty to be seen. Uh, just a lot of exposition, but the movie moves, or pardon me, the issue moves at a really good clip. And for those that wonder what scares the willies out of Superman, there you have it. Being unable to save the woman he loves due to his weaknesses. And Burnett does an awesome job of displaying that it isn't just kryptonite that can get under the Man of Steel's invulnerable skin, but his fears of being a failure as a husband, his fear of getting out of control with his powers. And without being heavy-handed or overly introspective, the story dissects Superman in the background of the plot, rather than replacing the plot with long bouts of uh, consciousness or, you know, internal monologue. It's simple but effective. Put Superman up against a proper villain or villains and just let that play out. And the fact that I like Gein's art, it's his clean art, but I don't feel overwhelmed by it, goes a long way toward my enjoyment of the issue. It's not the best issue of a Superman book, but definitely one that sways me towards the next issue, definitely. And that garners Superman Batman 38, a rating of pull list. And that wraps us up for episode 30 of Superman Forever Radio. Remember that I will be back tomorrow with the SFR Daily Planet, and I will be back Sunday with a brand new episode of Superman Forever Radio. And next Thursday will be the final Thursday episode, where we review books cover dated October of 2007. And remember to join me then. Remember to join me Sunday. And don't forget May 29th, 
Live episode, 6 p.m. Central at supermanforever.com. I am J. David Weeder, Superman's pal, and I thank you for joining me. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a production of supermanforever.com. As always, you can find the show and leave a review on iTunes or visit supermanforever.com. And of course, the show is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, where you can find other great Superman podcasts covering all eras of the Man of Steel at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Drop the show an email at mail at supermanforever.com or follow the show on Twitter. The username is at Superman, the number four, ever. Superman forever. And you, be, you can become a fan of the show on Facebook. Simply search for supermanforever.com and press the like button. Leave a voicemail at the call in line, which is 703-95-SUPER. That's 703-957-8737. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and no profit is made from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and until next episode, keep on fighting the never-ending battle.